0: Let's cut to the chase. The world of work is changing. There's no stopping that change. Welcome to the Better Work Project, brought to you by the team at SoftEd. I am your host, David Mantica, and joining me as co-host is Andy Cooper. In this podcast, we will explore the changing world of work, what the future of work means, how it affects businesses and workers alike and how we can create more productive and engaged workplaces. I hope you join us for the ride. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Better Work Project. We're on episode 17. Episode 17, very exciting. We're going to learn about an understanding of the human work machine. So that sounds kind of intriguing. Does it not, Andy, do you want to say hello?
1: Yeah. Hello. Feeling really uh, quite special today because I've just got some very nice new podcast gear along with a new system. So yeah, hopefully I'll actually say something
0: sensible. Ooh, you sound so good. How about you, Lauren? How are you doing? Do you have good equipment?
2: Uh, no, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I've got an excuse. So I...
0: Did you not get approval for your $3 headset yet?
2: I, You know, we're putting the hat around and then we're taking up a bit of a collection. We'll see how we go.
0: So for our three listeners, if they can find a fourth, that means that Lauren will be able to get a fancy headset and microphone. So please distribute this podcast out so Lauren can get her headset. Right, Lauren?
2: That would be very generous.
0: (laughs) So it's coming up on my favorite time of year, actually. And it's a a time of year that you don't have. So that doesn't sound very logical, but it's true. You don't have this time of year. And that's Thanksgiving. So, do you either one of you know where Thanksgiving in America comes from?
1: I will let you explain.
0: <laughs> come on, LG. Come on, you don't know. Nobody knows. Andy, Andy, Andy coolly and calmly said, "Pass." Lauren, you you must know.
2: I feel like I'll get it wrong. It's it's you have it in Canada and as well as America. I know that much. Yeah, that's but that's crazy. cheap. So
0: the Canadians are going to get mad at me. But that's Canadian Thanksgiving. That's a rip off.
2: We've got international listeners, so.
0: Oh, that's yeah, kind of cool. Well, the Thanksgiving comes from the pilgrims, and the pilgrims had a very harsh and challenging time, and they settled on Plymouth Rock. And the Indians helped them, and together the pilgrims and the Indians celebrated thankfulness of the blessings they received by actually not dying from every voracious, vicious, and nasty thing. So it's a Thanks. celebration. Oof. It's a celebration of Thanksgiving that they didn't die. So that is where Thanksgiving comes from. Now, have any either one of you ever seen Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving? No. No. No? Oh.
2: Share with us about that too?
0: No, no, I won't because that'll be very annoying. But what I will say, it was the first time in 30 years that it wasn't going to be brought on broadcast TV. It became a big mm. issue here. And they finally broadcast it on PBS, the public broadcasting system here in America. So what do you think you missed by not having Thanksgiving? Do you I think you know missed anything you, fun?
2: You've got some really grunty issues to work through, like screenings of movies, huh? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you, what do you mean by that? Explain that to me.
2: I mean, we're in the middle of some other uh, global concerns at the moment, but priorities, right?
0: Prior, exactly. Come on, it's America oh, yeah. here. You folks have a big holiday coming up, and that's your Christmas.
2: Yeah, Christmas time.
0: Christmas in the summertime, and Andy's not talking. I don't think he likes holidays.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah no i don't like them i love them i just came, <laughs> just came off one so you know feeling good from the afterglow of having some nice time away yeah, he's
2: preparing for his holiday by that's right
1: holiday. so that to me that's what thanksgiving <laughs> is i mean it's a celebration of connectedness and so on but it would also be a
0: holiday before a holiday that's exactly right i, I think you guys gotta invent your own thanksgiving to have a call it the holiday before the holiday New Zealand—it's the holiday for, for the holiday. You know, get recharged and energized for the hit the Christmas season hard. What will we call I don't it?
2: Know. We could put some um, marketing effort into that.
0: Yeah, so
2: Andy, what do you think?
0: Yep, we could. And would that be your thirty-fifth holiday and vacation day? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the <that's> fortieth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Very touche, brother. Very good oh. comeback. I'm very proud of you, Mr. Andy. You got the you slapped the American in the face very well with a sarcastic yeah. comment. I mean, he,
2: he's, he's just feeling a little bit jealous because he gets all of, was it two holidays over there? Yeah,
0: two holidays. Two holidays yeah. and, and, and a and a free gift card for a Happy Meal and McDonald's. That's well, what
2: you, get. you get a turkey. So I don't you know don't even call
0: them ready. holidays. You call them personal time off or something ridiculous, right? Yeah, no, PTO, it's pathetic, right? I'm going to get in trouble for my fellow Americans. They'll never listen to us again. So the topic itself, we're going to talk about understanding the human work machine, how our brains impact our success. Yes, we are, we are work machines, and sometimes we're physical labor work machines, and that's really kind of how our body um, and our mind and our brain has evolved. But we're now knowledge workers, and our primary instrument that drives that the work we do is our brains. Now, how much do you know about how your brain actually works? In very pragmatic terms, how do you process information? What is your brain's default settings? Why do we react emotionally even in logical work environments? Even when we can think about something, what are the distortions that impact that thinking? So we get beyond this emotional thing, that challenge we have, then we have these other whole distortions to deal with. I think knowing these things do two things. One, it enables us, you, me, to self-assess and self-manage. We can protect ourselves from the distortions. And then two, it enables us, me, you, to better manage work and relationships and and manage the work situations we find ourselves in. The reality is it is no longer about what you can do, AKA your technical skills. It's about how well you can get things done. And in all cases, that means how effectively you can work with others. Understanding the human work machine is the critical foundation to working very well and very successfully with others. So with that, Lauren will ask the questions, and Andy and I will throw some thoughts and ideas out.
2: Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm taking over again. This is a really interesting topic, and it's one that you and Andy have a real passion for and a lot of knowledge to share. So let's dive in. You mentioned knowledge workers, those that think for a living. But Dave, break it down for me. If the brain is the human work machine, then what do the mechanics of our brain look like? And how do they operate to make a successful knowledge worker?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we we think about our brains, the first thing we have to think about is the fact that it operates on survival and efficiency. And Stephen Dowling did a really good job of digging into this in the um, Unlearning podcast that we did a few podcasts ago. And so it also focuses in on the status quo. And so it's always trying to protect us and it's always trying to operate as efficiently as possible. One of the reasons it does that is although it's 2% of our bodies, it's, it takes up 20% or more of the resources to make it run that the body takes in. And the vast majority of times, we actually do not provide enough stimulus, enough food, enough you know, nutrients to let the brain actively operate at its highest, most effective level. So it goes into kind of that safe mode or that efficiency mode. And Daniel Cutterman from Thinking Fast and Slow dug, dug into this, and he talked about system one thinking and system two thinking. And system one thinking is when your brain works on this, the stereotypical heuristic patterns and stereotypical thought patterns and stereotypical decision-making patterns, which allows it not to have to think too deeply. And that gets us into a lot of problems, because at first, you, you act very emotionally when you're working off of system one thinking, And then it's very difficult for you to solve any problems outside of those things that you've learned and experienced and touched and felt. But now taking even a further step back from that, the evolution of our brain really has us processing the stimulus that comes to us through our eyes and light waves that gets transferred into our brain and images and thoughts that the brain processes In our ears, it's audio waves that then get processed to electrical stimulus that gets processed by the brain. So really, our eyes don't see, our ears don't hear, our brain interprets that and interprets it through perception, which ties back to memory. And that's tied into the limbic system. And inside the limbic system is where you get your three Fs, your freeze, your flight, or your fight. So. Everything that we process initially goes through that because from an evolutionary biology perspective, that was to protect us, right? So if I meet saber-toothed tiger in the wilderness, my cortisone shoots through my body, my muscles get all strengthened, blood flow goes to my extremities so I can either fight or I can run. Now, tying all this together, the other kind of bias that lends itself that you'll see throughout this discussion is the bias of preservation around trust and competency and how we judge people and pessimism. So from an evolutionary biology perspective, when I'm a cave person and I go meet another cave person, the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking at that cave person for trust and for competency. One, can I, can you hunt saber tooth tiger and do a really good job hunting saber tooth tiger with me? And then number two, are you going to kill me after we get the saber tooth tiger and eat it all yourself? So we have to understand that this is hardwired into our system one emotional thinking that we're judging people at that trust and competency level totally instinctively without even realizing it. Then the last piece is pessimism and pessimism evolves into our negative self-talk and into our cognitive distortions because a pessimistic person will survive in a highly chaotic environment. So if, there's, if I'm a cave person, there's rumbling in the bushes. If I don't go to that 10 out of 10 times, I survive. If I'm an optimistic person, I go to that, you know, every time one of those times I'm going to die because something in the bush is going to eat me. So ultimately evolutionary processes, survival of the fittest, the one who's smart enough to stay away from the rustling bush is going to drive that pessimism as a survival technique. So that was a lot of coverage, but I think it fundamentally, it starts being able to give you a foundation that we can build off of in the next parts of the conversation around the limbic brain. Processing information first, so you're dealing with the emotional response, and then the evolutionary biology issues which drive our cognition if we ever get there to have a pessimistic tone to it. Make sense?
2: Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's uh, the book provides a really good overview of the dynamics of the brain, and I like how he describes system one and system two. It kind of provides a a relatively simplistic way to view it. System one being fast, intuitive and emotional and system two, on the other hand, being slower, more deliberate and more logical. Andy, your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I think <clears throat> I agree. That's quite a good, you know, it's, it's a good way of summarizing some very complex uh, systems in the brain to, to deal with to deal with life. And I think the, the point that comes from that book is to be aware that under what circumstances these systems get triggered and also how to sort of override the one system, particularly system one, to try and provide a more thoughtful approach to to life.
0: You know, Andy, it's interesting the way Lauren said that too, because it's about speed. If we allow ourselves to react constantly, we're never going to bypass that system one and the emotional responses that system one dictates. It's only through pushing ourselves to take a step back, process the information that we're given, think through it, can we push ourselves into that system two thinking where we can start getting more logical, we can start seeing deeper correlations, we can start seeing non-intuitive connections, and we can start going outside the box of the, the learned experience that we bring in that our you know, system one thinking pulls from memory in quick snapshots and thinks that that's going to solve very difficult, complex problems.
1: It's the predictive thinking that you know it comes from past experience. And this ties back to the topic around the unlearning as well, where if we continue to use this predictive thinking based on past actions and, th- and thoughts, then we'll never um, be able to relearn.
0: That's right. And that's the hugest piece of it, is this realizing how you know, distorted some of those mindsets that are the part of the memory that gets pulled in system one thinking can be when related to solving complex issues or that are being impacted by rapid change.
2: And on that, David, our brains have evolved over thousands of years. And this means that We've got part of the brain that's responsible for survival, as you talked about, that generates our fight, flight, or freeze response, and then the part of the brain that's more evolved and responsible for higher level functions. But David, talk to us about the evolutionary biological issues that we have to watch out for.
0: Yeah, and I think kind of, kind of getting a, a deeper step into this is we have to consistently understand that there's no bypassing the limbic brain's initial processing of the stimulus that comes into us. There's no magical way to bypass that. It's the second oldest part of our brain. It's there for a reason, because again, always going back to the concept that the brain's focused on survival and efficiency, survival being critical. And initially evolution has not bypassed the fact that our survival isn't predicated on fighting or running away from a, something that may kill us physically. I mean, yes, we kind of become the apex predator, but our brain has still got that function in it to attack a challenge that way. Now here's the insidious part of this, is that it perceives the challenge at work that sets you into that fight, flight, or freeze feeling. It processes it like it processes something that might actually kill you. There's it, The limbic brain can't tell the difference. It just Senses that same feeling of urgency and attacks it the same way with the same stress, with the same neurotransmitters, with the same type of breathing techniques, with the same type of blood flow techniques. So the reality is now we have this part of our brain that was perfect for when we had to protect ourselves from predators that could actually kill us to now it acts that way and perceives slights in the office, negative emails, perceptions of not being competent to do our job appropriately as physical threats. And that manifestation comes out in some of the stress-related illnesses that a lot of us see. So understanding this begins then to help us protect us from it by using time to our advantage. And then the secondary aspect is to constantly understand that evolutionary biology has forced us into a pessimistic mindset. And that pessimistic mindset at both the emotional system one level, as well as the cognition system two level distorts. And in some ways, it actually distorts in the system two level more insidiously. And we'll get into that as we get into some of those cognitive distortions. So understanding this then lets you know and learn to practice the habit of slowing down not allowing somebody to force you into a rapid judgment and then catching yourself when you're having a physical response to stimulus that are being produced in your limbic brain so you can control it
2: and andy i want to bring you in here what are the ways that we can deal with the fight flight freeze response
1: I think the first thing is to start to understand what might, you might trigger those for you. So some things will be totally out of control. In other words, a dangerous situation, that's something you can't really control and obviously you want your limbic system to keep you from danger in that situation, but as David was talking about before, there are a lot of other situations where your brain perceives it as dangerous uh, or some form of threat, which in reality aren't. And so understanding what your triggers are is actually the first step, I think, in sort of figuring out how to overcome that. So previously, we talked about this, the idea of the SCARF model, which comes from the Neuroleadership Institute. And that's a good model, or a good way to help you figure out what your particular triggers are. So in the SCARF model, it, it talks about five different areas, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And each of these for all of us will have various varying levels of threat that will trigger us into potentially one of these sort of what is an otherwise known as a limbic hijack where your uh, limbic system takes over and you go into to one of these sort of modes so the, the first thing is awareness of which what are your triggers and start seeing when a conversation or when something goes into that and I think it's also the physical reaction that you start sensing being aware of that first feel that you have when you know that your system is being triggered into one of these uh, negative statuses and then being able to catch that uh, and then using intentional processes to help you move above that so one one that i've um, been trying myself came from a book that i read from uh called performing under pressure by Uh, A guy called Dr. Kerry Evans, who, amongst other things, advises people like the All Blacks, Liverpool football team, and many other people in high-pressure occupations, how to deal with pressure. So some of the the technique that he talks about, which I find particularly helpful when you feel yourself getting into the zone, is to, first of all, this is where you start, the intentionality is to, first of all, assess where you are from in the spectrum you know, he talks about red and blue. So red is, you know, on the far left, very red is when you're highly, you know, pressured or highly angry or some other negative form of emotion. And then very blue on the other side is when you're very calm and, you know, able to think clearly. And so the first step is to assess where you are. And if you're feeling yourself getting into that red zone, then that's the first thing is being aware that you are. And that awareness actually will shift your brain away from the limbic system into the you know system two then the next step that you then can do is to try and lift yourself above the situation almost like imagine that you're looking into it from above and think about that from the perspective of how it would look to someone else or if you were looking at it from from a higher place literally then it's having thought about that, and this can all happen in, in a very short time. It's this is not something that takes a long time. It can all be done in, in the space of, you know, fifteen to twenty seconds. Then the next thing is to decide what is the action you actually want to happen or what's the action that is likely to achieve a good outcome. And then it's to do that. So it's the intentionality that is what can help you first be aware of where you are and then secondly be able to move your way out of that type of situation which may well lead to you know a bad situation
2: yeah and actually um andy jessica katz in one of our previous podcasts provided a really useful model it was a t model thought emotion and action and just trying to get curious about what the thought is that's generating the emotion which then can help you in terms of the action but i want to shift gears a little bit and I actually stumbled across interesting uh, research recently that kind of highlighted how there's a difference in how women experience a survival response. So rather than this fight-flight mode, women often adopt a tend and befriend approach. And we've seen this actually play out here in New Zealand from our Prime Minister in response to COVID-19. It's played out in terms of the communication, for instance. We've had really clear communication about Being kind and looking out for one another and acting as a team of 5 million, perhaps not your usual or expected political messaging. David, that might sound pretty strange at your end in the US. What's your take on that?
0: That's that's interesting research. It it would make sense. It would connect in with how women operate as leaders, both intuitively, especially intuitively, and in some ways, non-intuitively, thoughtfully as well. It is a strong positive survival technique to bring folks together. It necessarily it could be broken easily under somebody's fight, flight, and freeze mentality because you get very, very individualistic when under survival. That's when your brain is acting in survival mode, you become very selfish. And the more fearful you are, the more selfish you get. So it's actually a wonderful thing that happens in you know, some of the population means you could protect us. And I also kind of jokingly think at some point as we continue to evolve, that would be one of the most beautiful things that happen in our evolution is that we get away when forced into the three Fs or forced into the limbic emotion of getting it so personal, so individualistic and starting to think about it in terms of helping each other and helping you know those around you instead. So that actually, it's a pretty powerful thing that will, with better society, if that could be, that could happen to us from an evolutionary standpoint. But what we do when, and when of those of us who get wrapped up in the three F's is when we have to monitor some of the physical aspects. Like the, when you start getting the physical manifestations of the emotional responses, you're going to get headaches. That's your first electrical zone in your body is your head. You might get some sinus issues as well. The next electrical zone in your body is your heart. So heart palpitations, heart stress, pains in your chest. You might get shortness of breath. You'll do the chest breathing instead of the diaphragmic breathing. And then ultimately you'll start getting your your third electrical zone is in your stomach your intestines, you'll have d- stomach issues. So those are the three. And then it'll begin to get worse because as you do the chest breathing instead of the deep breathing, your body will reduce more oxygen going into the brain as the oxygen continues to be pushed to the extremities. And then you'll end up getting into a panic attack situation or potentially even hypoventilating. Hypothen- and as you get deeper and deeper into this, it becomes more me, 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 me to instead of fighting, th- sometimes fighting through that means to be thinking about the others around you. So that's kind of even more how insidious it gets is, as Andy says, you get caught in that limbic mess.
2: Yeah, into a bit of a spiral. Andy, do you have anything to add to that?
0: No, nope. I think David said
1: it quite well.
2: Yeah, he did, he did. I guess um, just exploring the differences between men and women, it's really interesting that imposter syndrome is experienced more commonly in women and and actually really interestingly more often in high achievers. but. Almost everyone experiences negative self-talk and self-doubt. Mm-hmm. David, we can really beat ourselves up, can't we? So oh, tell god! Me about-
0: I love this to- <laughs> I love this topic because I had we could very- talk about this
2: all day long. Yeah,
0: I had a very big imposter syndrome experience. So after I left the training industry, I got into the B two C wearable device space as a CFO, and even though I owned my own business and really understood accounting very well, I constantly had an feeling that I didn't have the right skills to be the CFO. I didn't quite understand how to do the work. And that was resonating in how I felt about the the job, how I felt about myself. And it was quite a struggle sometimes, even though I was doing the cash flow analysis right. I was doing the gap analysis right. I was doing these things right. I just had this mindset that drove confirmation bias that constantly made me feel less than adequate. And ultimately affected me to say that maybe this wasn't for me. And I'm glad I had the experience and it taught me a great deal. But in some cases, it was a painful experience. And it's sad because as Andy was talking about, the thinking mind catches the negative self-talk. So we don't know what it is that we're saying to ourselves. And sometimes we don't realize it until the bitter end. And because of our pessimistic evolutionary biology related to our brain and protection, that self-talk is in most cases, it's negative. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Uh, And so for me, a great example of this is also presentations. I still get nervous every time I present and I know what's going on inside my head. I'm not good enough. I don't know my topic. People aren't going to believe me. Someone's going to ask me a question I can't answer. They're not going to get value associated with this. And it becomes very insidious. So First and foremost is generating the self-awareness, as Andy was talking about through the model he discussed, to catch those thoughts. And another tool is meditation, is where a meditator will be able to teach a person how to see those thoughts. You're never going to stop these thoughts. You just know them and then not emote on them. And then the other thing, which I know a lot of people think I'm insane about, but I do believe in positive affirmations and spoken positive affirmations will battle negative self-talk very well. I am good enough. I am smart enough. I've done this presentation a thousand times. I know how to read the spreadsheet. The last three weeks, I've handled this very well. And saying this, when you say it becomes more real and and you begin to believe it. And so that positive affirmation is a way to counteract the negative self-talk that occurs, but you can't hide from it. It happens and it happens to all of us and it's insidious and it's the underlying basis for this idea of imposter syndrome. And then it ties back to confirmation bias because if you have a mind, a fixed mindset that says you really can't be a CFO because you didn't get your accounting degree, Then you're going to that negative self-talk is going to feed on your confirmation bias, which causes this imposter syndrome to get even worse. So now you have both the emotional side of the distortion and the cognitive side, confirmation bias, banging on you, and you're 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 dealing with a hellacious situation. So it is insidious, but you can counter it. But you have to know about it first. And the sad thing is that most people don't know about it.
2: Yeah, we're so much more generous to others than we are to ourselves. Yes! We could get get feedback on 10 things, nine being positive and one area for improvement. And what do we focus on? The one thing we can do better. Andy, I want to bring you in here. Tell me about negative self-talk and where do you think it fits into all of this?
1: Well, I think in terms of negative self-talk, the challenge with that is, I think part of it is just being aware that that thoughts are not as real as we think. In other words, there are we think of, of things that come into our head as being part of who we are. When in reality, a lot of the thoughts that come into our head are really generated by messages from the brain. And they're there for a specific purpose. They're there to keep us safe. So a lot of negative talk comes from, from self-generated messages from the brain from past situations which have generated some form of negative response it could be that we flubbed our first speech we got really nervous about it and so we didn't do very well and we felt bad about it and it's that we then we we come along to that same situation again the brain says ah i see we're coming into danger again you're going to be doing another speech you don't like doing those i'm going to tell you you don't like them i'm going to tell you to, to not do them and so this whole concept of You know the brain will generate effectively like warning messages all the time it's there to keep us safe it's there to keep us away from danger so we've got to be able to sort of separate the our thoughts almost into thinking like well i don't have to actually follow those thoughts those thoughts are like messages they're like warning messages or dials on a speedo they're not something that i always have to respond to or always have to accept i have to be able to challenge those sort of messages. But, but also understand potentially where they've come from. So what did generate that response? How do I move forward from that? But I think the other thing is also reframing. We know from a lot of experience and also just from research that when you start feeling nervous about something that is in response to a situation, it could be a big speech you're doing or it could be some new activity. You know, again, that's designed for a purpose. But the way you talk about to yourself about that can have a big impact in terms of of the outcome you get so if you feeling nervous um, or feeling you know a sense of adrenaline that's coming in you and you start shaking or then the, the way you describe that is is actually really important so rather than starting to say to yourself oh i'm nervous therefore i'm not going to do well start thinking about how do you the reframing that from the point of view of oh Actually, I can feel excited. So that's what I'm feeling. I'm actually feeling excited, and by just changing that that thought away from nervous to excited, it can have a completely different outcome. And so, the self talk you have can make a huge difference to what you do as a result of that. So, channeling that uh, fear away from potentially to excitement can mean that you step into new situations willingly and. you do a good result from that. And then the brain rewards for that. They're saying, well, I'll do that again. So that's the way of changing this from a positive, a negative to a positive is to start reframing it. Challenge. You know, Andy,
0: on that note, that's where I really learned a ton when I started digging deeper into mindsets and, and underlying beliefs, because I struggled at the behavior and the action level to do exactly what you're saying. And what I realized is that my behaviors and actions were being counterbalanced by those underlying beliefs. And you talk about the growth mindset. I know you talk about the growth mindset, the fixed mindset a lot, especially in your adaptive leadership presentation. I think this is what happens is to really attack that negative self-talk, you kind of break the memory's understanding of your previous mindset, break that fixed mindset and change it to a growth mindset. So when at least when the brain is pulling from memory, to attack the limbic system, it's a memory of a growth orientation, I can do it mindset compared to, oh, only somebody who has done 10 TED Talks can actually do this type of presentation. And I think it comes back to awareness, right? I wasn't even aware even up to a few months ago as I I did some therapy work and the therapist really helped me dig into mindsets and underlying beliefs that I was incredible. I was clueless about. It's insane what we don't know.
2: Let's jump into that. So our mindset can really impact our motivation, our achievement and self-regulation. Tell me a little bit more about that, David, and your mindset and how your underlying belief impacted you at work.
0: Well, here's a great example of it from my perspective. So one of my underlying beliefs is that I don't trust people in power. Because I know power corrupts and it corrupts absolutely. And the fact that no matter what, what if you're in a power position, you will at some point in time start judging yourself as being more important and more valuable than those around you. So since I have this mindset that I don't trust people in power, I am going to always acquiesce because I don't want to really say what I think I should be saying because I don't trust that they're going to process it properly And so I may lose my job, which in some cases lose my job is like death from a how my limbic brain processes it. So it impacts my enjoyment and it drives my fear mindset over my growth mindset at work because of that underlying belief. And once I got an understanding of that underlying belief, I was like, ah, now I can see where I struggle and where I struggle with radical candor, you know. Ah, where I struggle with you know ha- and having some enjoyment, and not always being fearful of the next day because I have to perform. Because who knows when the boss person's going to say, "Get the heck out of here, you're no good," and, and that's the amazing power that a heavily used, forgotten mindset that gets pulled from memory and system through thinking can have on your one quality of your work, your quality of your life, and your ability to grow and prosper in in rapid change.
2: Wow, that's a really interesting one. But So you've been a leader and you've experienced a level of power. Did that also help to shift your mindset?
0: No, because every day I was processing it my god every day I used to have to fight it I, I don't mean to sound so like the hyperbole sounds like you know I got the American hyperbole going on it should be on CNN or Fox at this point in time with the way it sounded <laughs> but basically every day as a leader I had to fight this every day I mean I used to think oh well I started this company so I'm really special oh it's my ideas or you know if, if I if we don't do our job right I can't pay them so it's about me it's about it's amazing how insidious it really is. So no, in some ways it's made me more acutely aware, but I think what got me was when the therapist really made those connections, it could show me how my, that mindset was impacting my enjoyment of life. And as Andy was talking about, when I brutally interrupted him was being able to switch that. And when I could switch that, the impact can be significant. Now it's a work in progress, but what I talk about with this presentation is that we don't train people on this stuff. So they, they're they out there f- doing knowledge work, completely ignorant of how their brain is is help making them do knowledge work as if they have one hand tied behind their back, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah. I want to sort of pick up the concept of mindset a little bit more, but I want to talk about future mindset. So people often aren't very good at understanding how they'll feel in the future. So We tend to plan for the worst, like we're really good at foreboding joy or catastrophizing, and we're equally good at underestimating effort. So tell me about effective forecasting. How does that impact us?
0: So again, it goes back to system two cognitive distortions. So that pessimism I was talking about is rampant in us. Your brain always wants to survive. And before the podcast, we were talking about a conversation I was having with somebody who is having a significant loss regret moment. And that lost regret was is that he could not see himself doing a new job for fear that he will fail at that job and he doesn't have job security. So it's got that level of imposter syndrome, but more it's the idea that I don't want to change because if I change, I might fail and I don't want to fail. That fear of failure, and sometimes it manifests itself in time discounting, time discounting says, I value today more than I value tomorrow. I jokingly talk about that's why I'm fat. I'm fat because I I like to eat. So I value today. And I forget the fact that it's going to lead to heart disease. It's going to lead to bad knees, bad hips, a whole bunch of other crapola that's going to make my life less than desirable because again, I value today because that's a protection mechanism. I'm going to live today, value today. And this is also why our brains really focus us in on the status quo. I know today I can touch it. I know what I'm doing today, so I don't want to change it. That's lost regret. And you put these two things together and we are kind of, even in our cognition, our system to thinking, we're locked in this box of wanting to stay where we're at because it's tangible. We get it and we know it. And our brain is going to play games with us to keep us there because that's what's comfortable. So we have to do as Andy was saying and build the techniques up to be able to force ourselves out of that box and, You know, effective forecasting, as you were saying, Lauren, also ties back to the duration. It's horrible with negativity. It increases the duration and the intensity of any negative situation. And so that's also why we're horrible forecasters. And you'll see a big movement in Agile. And that same Jessica Katz you were talking about, Jessica does a lot of talk about no more estimates because the whole effective forecasting concept also gets into why human beings are extremely poor estimators cost estimations and time estimates for work that go over and beyond like a week. That make any sense?
2: Yeah. Look, that explains why my bathroom renovation is taking a bit longer than I've been told. Hey, Andy, <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to add to that Andy?
1: I think it's just to reinforce the point about the negative bias, you know, so the survival mechanism has made us focus more on the negative. And so we will tend to look and overweight the negative side of it. So the loss regret that David talked about, will value a loss much bigger than a gain, and it's almost twice that. So that's part of it as well. So thinking about that from a work context, it should always be mind—you always need to be mindful about how much people value the loss. So when you're talking about change and change management, people worry about what they're going to lose more than what you're than they're going to gain. So you need to offset that by at least twice as much for them to even be comfortable with the thought of it, let alone be wanting to do it. But I also think that the other side of that is that it prevents us from having conversations often as well. Because of this negative bias, we will overweight how the likely bad outcome we'll get from having a conversation. So we will steer away from having a candid conversation because we'll overweight how bad it's likely to be and how that person will take it. So again, it can have a huge issue in terms of us not being able to communicate well when we don't think about how much we tend to overweight the negative bias that goes towards
0: thinking in the future.
2: Yeah. And that's where sort of cognitive distortion comes in. Um, Damn, that was,
0: by the way, that was really good, Andy. Fantastic, man. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you just did a, you did a great job at the doubling, which is you, and, and people don't realize how important that is in to change management programs to tell the story, to show somebody from lost, suffering from lost regret. The story is such a powerful way to help them begin to see the other side. And you explained it so well and, and they get mad and people get mad at somebody. It's like, what? what are you? You're not smart. You don't get it. No, they're great people. They're suffering from lost regret. Give them a break. Help them see the other side it has nothing to do with them as a person. It's, our brains and how our brains work to protect us, and I think maybe if we started thinking that way, we'd see people in a different light. That's the other thing I, I hope for, and I think you pointed out very well in that in that pitch you did.
1: Yeah, I think there's one other point that's that I've observed in myself as well. And the more I've studied this, the the more I have to be very cognizant of this tendency, and that is if someone disagrees with something that I say, then my brain tends to say, wait them to being someone that I potentially don't like. And so this whole concept of in-group and out-group, and so then everything that that person says from that says that from that point on, I then, I'm not listening to, or I'm not actually th- evaluating on its merits. And so I've got to become very aware that just because someone doesn't bel- say, or doesn't agree with what I'm saying, that I don't want to cast them into an out-group and then stop listening. So that's something yeah, that's that I've it. become very aware of is to prevent myself from trying to sort of judge people and push them into a group that then makes me, in a way, a worse person and not live my own personal values.
0: I, I love it. I completely agree.
2: Hard to do, right? I want to wrap up with a final question. So we've talked about the power of the brain and we've talked about times when we've had to really work against some negative thinking. I want to finish with some techniques from both of you to help our lizard brains and more evolved brains to deal with knowledge work. Final thoughts?
0: On my side, walk, walk, walk. Exercise is a very powerful tool to get the right neurochemicals in your brain to start feeding a better and stronger growth mindset. It doesn't have to be that fast, at least 30 minutes a day. It's a very powerful way to get some of the neurotransmitters going to help you battle this on a consistent basis. So that's number one. I think number two is meditation is a tool that us folks in the West don't understand at all. And to get a better understanding of our thought patterns by practicing meditation, the book 10% Happier by by Dan Brown is a phenomenal, Funny, interesting story about how it helped him see things clearly when he understood the things he was really saying to himself. So that's number two. And then number three is, you know, Andy talks a lot about atomic habits and tiny habits, using tiny habits tied to the 30 day challenge to help build some positive habits to get you in a proper mindset. And then the last thing I'll say is learn about how your brain operates, you know, dig into it more. And when you dig into it more, you can start having some aha moments. And from those aha moments, you can begin practicing some of the skills to make you enjoy life better. I mean, when I was at my worst in my early 30s and 30s, was suffering a huge stress-related anxiety attacks, and it took a nurse to say to me, hey, you don't have to live this way. And I'm like, what? I mean, I had no idea what was going on with me. And it just took one person to point that out for me to go down this path to begin learning about what was happening that made all the difference and my life could have been significantly worse. So education helps you control these issues and get you a better perspective on what's going on.
1: So a couple of other thoughts, I think the one that I am personally aware of and that I to- now totally believe in is that the foundation of, of a good day is a good night and that typically means a good sleep. So having, you know at least seven hours of good sleep is actually i think the foundation for a knowledge worker to have to start a good day followed up by as david said by exercise frequent exercise i think that again has huge benefits for us in terms of neurological and physical and then other things that david i think again agree with medit- the whole concept of meditation is something that a person found. Quite interesting. I've just read a book about breath and how important different breathing techniques are. So, understanding more of, um, about how often simple things like not breathing um, through our nose but through our mouth can have an impact in terms of the amount of oxygen or carbon dioxide we have in our system, which can impact quite a bit our physical and mental well being. So, some fundamental things in breathing, some of which are covered in meditation. Other techniques just in terms of if if you're trying to learn something, first thing is focus, so try remove your distractions to be able to tell your brain that it's important. So therefore focus on something is the first step to learning. Then the next step to make that learning stick is to have a good sleep and literally your brain it will then take that learning and then transfer that into long term during that time. And then then through repetition. So then it's about repeating that over time as well, testing your brain to see how much you recall. And you'll then find that if you follow those sort of things, you'll actually start active learning and train yourself. Now, one interesting um, piece of information that I've recently learned is that one of the reasons that why people stop learning is because learning is actually quite hard. So when we actually look at it from a physiological point of view, when you start learning, the brain generates norepinephrine, which is a, a type of adrenaline in your brain, and which basically is a stimulant for your brain to say, start taking notice of this. Now that feeling is actually quite uncomfortable. And so literally, when you start learning, you're going to feel some discomfort. So one of the reasons we do not perhaps we don't want to learn is because we don't want to feel that discomfort. So getting actually comfortable with the fact that you will feel uncomfortable when you start learning is actually how we actually can start doing more learning. And then the other thing that goes with that, which is another recent piece of information was, and this is some new neuroscience around learning is if we want to, to make learning and any form of new habits stick, then rather we've got to get good at rewarding the struggle. So when I am feeling whatever I'm doing at the hardest point, you basically say to yourself, this is hard, but it's good, you know, and and reward yourself. And when you do that, your brain releases some dopamine, which over time starts to then reward struggle. And when you reward struggle is when you learn. So some new interesting information I just sort of come across, which I find quite fascinating and have started to apply. And it started to help me progress in, in my learning and in areas that t- traditionally I found tough.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting, Andy. I, I like you talking about recognising that you won't be great on your first attempt. So, you know, we understand that you can't pick up a violin and, and play the first time or play well, but we often expect to with knowledge work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
1: in a way, it's saying reward the struggle. So mm. get used to, you know, whenever you're feeling something struggle, actually st- Tell yourself, this is good. This is how I'm learning. And and this is, and you release the dopamine, which will then actually make you feel better. And then over time you start actually looking forward and looking for the struggle. And I think this is what they're now understanding. The reason why the people like the Navy SEALs and those, the high performing athletes, the difference between the ones that are high performing or not are the ones that can actually in that struggle reward themselves to keep themselves going when it gets tough
0: great stuff man great stuff
2: thank you both that was a a great discussion and there was a lot to unpack i want to thank you for your candor and for sharing your stories that was episode 17 thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on the better work project
0: thank you Laura. thank you andy thank you for joining us on this edition of the better work project if you like this episode please be sure to rate review and tell your friends and colleagues about it if you have specific suggestions or ideas for future podcasts please do not hesitate to reach out to us continue to fight the good fight we'll see you next time on the better work project thank you